Uh, I've noticed I've been having a little bit of trouble seeing, and uh, it's been a while, like a long while, since I went to the eye doctor. So I went, I found out that my eye doctor is no longer there. Uh, I was informed that he had actually moved out of the city, and he's actually relocated back to Waco, and he's someplace else. And so it had been a while. And I was noticing I was having some trouble seeing some things up close, like on my phone, uh, some incidents of reading the Bible in the hospital and realizing I couldn't see the text. I had to go from memory, and so I'm like, it's time to go to the eye doctor. And, and I did, and I tell you, without glasses or without context, I am like, like blind almost, you know, like I could make out the E, or I guess it's an H or something like that, but I'll tell you what, aren't glasses and context awesome? You pop those babies in, and all of a sudden you got clarity and you can see. And really, you know, when we come to our relationship with Christ, all of a sudden, like, the blind, they now can see, right? You know, God gives us the ability to see Jesus for who he really is. And we actually start to be able to see people. And we see them differently because of our relationship with Christ. And that's really what God has designed. He wants us to develop the ability to see well. To see him well. To see others well. And that's really what was taking place in the Thessalonian church. Just to kind of, by way of review, to kind of bring you to the two verses we're going to look at today, I want to highlight what God had been doing in the Thessalonians. Remember in chapter 1, verse 5, or verses 6 and 7, it said, You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So they've received the Spirit of God, and they have now joy in their lives. In fact, verse 7 says they became an example to all the believers in Achaia and Macedonia. So throughout the Roman Empire, their faith was taking root and people were talking about it. And look at verses 9 and 10. It says, For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Whatever idols they had, false gods, maybe they were worshiping success, Entertainment, money, sex, power, whatever it is, I'll tell you, if you do not have your trust and faith in Jesus Christ, you have a God-shaped void that you're filling with either someone or something. But you're always going to be unsatisfied. You're always going to come up empty until you place your trust in Christ, and that's exactly what they did. In fact, they were waiting, verse 10, for Christ's return. And then remember in chapter 2, verse 13, Paul highlighted this. For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it for not as the word of men, but for what it really is. What is it? It is the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. So they've received the spirit because they had received Christ. They received the Bible as the word of God. And God was doing a work in their midst so much so, chapter 4, verse 1, he said, Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as how you ought to walk and please God, notice this, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. You see, there was growth in their relationship with Christ. They were maturing. And Paul is noting, not only has it happened, but I'm encouraging you to excel still more. And then we're in chapter 5, he actually pointed this out, verses 9 and 10. He says, For God has not destined us for wrath, 
but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. That is the beauty of the gospel. Christ has united us with himself. You and I are never alone. In fact, he wants us to experience his power working in us. As we say, God, simply do your work through us, we experience the power of knowing Jesus, this relationship we have with him. And this relationship that we have with Christ not only changes how we view God and how we walk with God, but it also changes how you and I see one another, how we relate to people. You see, uh, before you and I became Christians, we were very self-centered. I know I was. Really, it's all about me, my interests, my desires, my goals. But when I came to a place where I turned from self-centeredness and sin to believe in Jesus, my whole orientation began to change. Now I'm more interested in his interests, his goals, his desires. And it's an ongoing process. It's the process of sanctification where God is setting us to sell ourselves apart to him. We move from seeing people like, hey, what can you do for me? To how can I be helpful or even a blessing to you? So I'd like to ask, how do you see people? How's your vision? You see, how we see people affects how we treat people. How we see people affects how we treat people. When we see people as made in God's image and, and, just, and needing love, we treat them differently than if we see people as just wretched humanity that's just an inconvenience to my agenda. You see, we are blessed with relationships because God intends that we will be blessings to others. All significant relationships are going to have challenges. They're going to face difficulty. We are going to have people problems. But God desires that we be, we are a people of relational depth. It's part of our DNA to kind of like just stiff arm people, even though we're hardwired for relationships. And what happens is we settle for a bunch of superficiality. And even if you're married or you have great friendships, there's just a level of intimacy that just like gets hit a roadblock unless you develop tools to develop depth in your relationship. And that's exactly what God is desiring for us. So remember last week in verse 13, that verse ends, live in peace with one another. God wants our relationships to be categorized by peace. This word peace uh, kind of summons the Hebrew word shalom. It's not merely the absence of war, but it's really the ongoing calming confidence that comes from knowing God, that he's in our midst, that he loves us, that he's good, that he's in sovereign control. You and I, even when we're going through the storms of life, we can experience peace because we know Christ. We are trusting him. You can have chaos all around, but you can have calmness in your soul when you trust in Jesus, when you look to him and say, God, be my strength and my peace. And that's what God wants our relationships to be categorized by, peace. Remember when he went through the book of Romans? Romans 12, 18 says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. If it's up to you, as far as you can make this happen, be at peace with all people. That requires perseverance. If you're going to be a person of peace, you're going to have to be the one 
that tries to, to work it out. You demonstrate a willingness. You're the one that's going to make the first move. And in Christ, this relationship we have with Christ, well, you and I can actually do that. Really, it kind of comes down to how you see people. You know, if you and I see people with the eyes of a judge, why, we're going to be those who are rather condemning. We will assume the worst in people if you see people with the eyes of a judge. On the other hand, if you learn to see people with the eyes of a doctor, where you see how God can actually meet the hurts in people's lives, that God may actually use you in that process, why it changes everything. Instead of seeing just folks that are like arrogant and belligerent and acting rebellious, do you understand these are symptoms of deep insecurity and even failure in people's lives? That's why people act like that. Because they're hurt inside and they're insecure, so they throw out an image. When you see uh, marriages where there's just, there's just no love, you understand there's some heart issues. God can bring change, real change, hope, forgiveness, life. You see kids that have no boundaries and they just seem so wayward and they're not exactly sure where to go in life. You understand those are symptoms of greater problems and God can bring hope and healing. And he may actually use you in the process. You see, how we see people really affects how we treat people. So what is this orientation that God wants his people to have as Christ-centered believers? What, is, what, kind of, what do our relationships look like? Well, look at verse 14 and 15. He spells it out. The first thing that he, noticed, he notes is in verse 14, he says, We urge you. You hear this kind of pleading? We urge you, brethren, speaking of the fact that you're in the family of God, all of you who are God's children by adoption, through trusting in Christ, he says, admonish the unruly. The word admonish has the idea to instruct, to teach, to warn, to literally put in one's mind. And he, he says, admonish the unruly. Unruly is a pretty interesting word. It comes from the military, and it refers to a soldier who's no longer keeping in step with the rest of the army. So you ever wonder, like, where did that phrase, like, you're out of line, come from? It comes from this. You're no longer marching to the drummer. In fact, you're marching to the beat of another drummer. You are out of line. You are causing disruption. You're not following through with what is intended here. This word was also used to people who were just idle. They could work, but they wouldn't work. They'd cause disruption. They'd figure, like, hey, listen, that's what we got the church for. They can take care of me. Now, listen, if you can't work and you are in desperate straits, we want to do what we can to care for you. But if you can work, you need to apply yourself. And that's, he would refer to these people as unruly. And he says, admonish those who are unruly. Warn them. You, you do this this way. You, you speak the truth in love. You have an obligation, by virtue of family relationship, to address behavior that is flagrantly wrong. And yet, this is how you do it. You do it with sensitivity. Let me give you a great Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 27, verse 6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. You say, you know, listen, I'm going to tell you something, and this is going to hurt. But, I, but I've noticed this behavior, or I've noticed that you've done this, or you keep saying this. I want, to, I want to talk with you about this. 
If you love someone, you are committed to their well-being. That means that you're willing to do the hard stuff. But he said, deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. If you just say, oh, you're fine, or you never address it, you just watch it happen, you may think, well, I don't want to call in any ways. Actually, you're demonstrating you really don't love that individual all that much, do you? You know, if you're a parent, you are going to have to speak truth into your kids' lives. They're unruly. They're, they're, they're outside the line. They're marching to their own tune, and they're causing all sorts of disruption in your family and in school and on their teams. You need to address the issue, and you do it with love if you truly love your children. And friends, if you don't, not only are you going to set yourself up for a lot of heartache, you are setting their life up for disaster. So he says, admonish the unruly. There's a Christian businessman and author, John Beckettson. He uh, writes of this story, this event that took place in his life where he's, he's at the dentist's office and he's having a filling replaced. And uh, while he's there and the technician is starting the process, uh, she says, well, wait, you're Mr. Beckett, aren't you? And he's like, uh-huh. You know, why is it that like when you're getting like your teeth worked on, like they ask you a question like, tell me about your family. And you're like, uh-huh, uh-huh. You know, you can't really do anything. You know, putting all these instruments. And she goes, you're Mr. Beckett, aren't you? And he's like, well, then she went on to say, well, I want to thank you for firing my husband. <laughs> you know, and he's like, he's saying, there's nothing I could do. I couldn't move. I couldn't speak. I just had to go through this monologue. And I'm kind of hoping that I don't get, you know, like stabbed in the mouth with some sharp implements in the process. And here's this technician saying, you're the one who fired my husband. And then... He writes, this is what she said. You know, it happened 10 years ago. A few days after your company hired my husband, he was notified that he failed a drug test. You may not recall, but you called him into your office before he left. You said, I realize I don't have any choice but to terminate you, but I want to tell you something. You're at a crossroads. You can keep going the way you are, and the results are very predictable. Or... You can take this as a wake-up call, and you can decide that you're going to turn your life around. And he's like, he writes, I, I'm sure she could just see the beads of perspiration just kind of coming down his forehead. And then she said this, I want you to know, my husband took your advice. Today, he's a good father. He's a good husband, and he's in a fine job. Thank you for firing my husband. <laughs> you know, you just got that sense of relief, right? And then Beckett went on to write, I wish I could say that all our terminations have turned out this way. But regardless of the outcome, however, we must be prepared to take action when a situation can't be brought around. In a strange way, it's an aspect of our care for people. You see, our orientation as Christ-centered individuals means that we are going to do as the text says. We will admonish the unruly. And notice what else he says. We are to encourage the faint-hearted. Every individual, I don't care how successful they are, how old they are, what they drive, where they live, what they do, what they look like, every single individual needs encouragement. We all face times of, of discouragement, even despair. And so he says, encourage the faint-hearted. How many of you think that, like, the Apostle Paul was a pretty spiritually mature guy. Okay, a few of you. Well, I'm going to be in the camp that 
he was a very mature guy. Uh, his whole mission was to see everybody come to fullness of maturity in Christ. A pretty noble mission. But you know, Paul is very transparent, and God had him be so in the scriptures. Like in 2 Corinthians, he, he wrote this, you know, For we don't want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia. But we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. He says, we want you to know that, man, we were really hurting. Despairing even of life itself. Remember what he went on to say in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 6? He said, but God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us with the coming of Titus. See, God brought Titus into my life, and that, that brought encouragement. I mean, we're talking later in the years. He's been walking with Jesus for some time. It's really interesting when you look at Paul's life. Remember, when he first gets started, you know the first guy that really invested in Paul? A guy by the name of Barnabas. You know what he was known as? Anybody know? The son of encouragement. Paul was a guy who needed encouragement. He also was one of the most significant writers of the New Testament. God used him in great ways. But he needed encouragement. Encourage has the idea to exercise gentle influence with words, to console, to comfort. To cheer up. And all of these are in present imperatives, meaning you do this as an ongoing lifestyle, a way of life. He says, encourage the faint-hearted, those who are discouraged, literally those who are of small soul or, or short of soul. And so you encourage them, whether they're fearful or they feel inadequate or ungifted or they're despondent, you come along with words to give them encouragement and strength. They need exhortation in the midst of the difficulties. Fresh strength in Jesus, and that's what you provide. Remember 1 Thessalonians 5.11? This is such an important ministry. If you are truly looking for the return of Jesus, in context, he wants us to do verse 11, chapter 5. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you also are doing. He wants us to be life-giving encouragers as a way of life. In sports, on an international stage, uh, one of the, the great moments, certainly in track and field, took place in the 1936 Olympics in Berlin. Adolf Hitler was very intent on showing the superiority of the Aryan race to the world. When the United States showed, came, they brought with them a sharecropper's son by the name of Jesse Owens. Jesse Owens, a year before, set three world records in one track meet. And when they actually, when the American team came and Jesse Owens was blocked, he, would, he was actually scorned. Hitler just despised, especially a guy like Jesse Owens being black. So when it came to the prelims and the long jump, Jesse Owens was feeling the pressure. In fact, he scratched the first two times, meaning you actually step over the board where you're supposed to jump off. Even if you just a little bit, it's called a scratch. And he only had three qualifying tries. He'd missed the first two, and he's trying to get ready to do the third one. He is the world record holder, and it looks like he's not even going to get to jump in the finals. And while he's standing there, there is this blonde-haired guy that everyone in the stadium knows. Luke's blonde. He is, he is identified as like the ideal Aryan, the ideal German. Strong, full of vitality, blonde-haired, blue eyes. And he comes up, and he starts talking with Jesse Owens. And what he told him is, it's like, listen, you know, you're, you're scratching. What if you just do this? Just set the mark a couple inches behind the board. I mean, you're easily going to make the qualifying jump. Just set it. Just have some 
Jones. One of the great moments in track and field. Five different times, as Jesse and Lutz kept jumping, they broke the world, they broke the Olympic record. Lutz Long is in first place. Jesse Owens is on his final jump. And when he makes the jump, he again breaks the Olympic record and he wins. In fact, he won the four, that was the, he won four Olympic gold medals in those Olympics. Hitler threw one of his pipper tantrums that he's known for, and he leaves in a tirade. And you know who the first person to walk up and congratulate Jesse Owens? Lutz Long. Lutz Long eventually died in World War II as a German soldier. Before he died, Jesse Owens and Lutz developed correspondence. And Jesse Owens later wrote this, You could melt down all the medals and cups I have, and they wouldn't be plating on the 24-carat friendship I felt for Lutz Long. Friends, never underestimate the power of encouragement. Remember Sean and Leanne Tui? Remember the movie Blindside? Okay. Well, the real-life couple, Sean and Leanne Tui, they wrote a book called In a Heartbeat. And in this book, they reference a kind of a not well-known congressional program that takes kids that have been in foster care all their life. They've never been adopted. Once they're, they're of age where they can no longer be in foster care, there is this program that can act, they can actually become, a few of them, interns. And so this particular senator picked up one of these interns, and here's this young man, and he shows up early for work, and he gets to work right away, and he cleans up the mail room like it's never been cleaned before. When the senator walks in, he's like, whoa, whoa, I have never seen the mail room look so good. This is amazing. Great job. The senator goes into his office, and a few minutes later, he comes out and gets something, and, and here's his new intern, and he's got tears coming out of his eyes, and he's crying. He's like, whoa. Is everything okay? Did, did, I, did I say something, son? And I, was, I said, well, what's wrong? And this young man said this. That's the first time in my life anyone told me I did something good. That's who he's right in their book. A little bit of attention and a kind word. That's how little it takes to affect someone's life for the better. Friends, this is what God wants us to develop as life-giving encouragers, where this becomes kind of our MO. It's how we go. Wouldn't it be cool if we were known as encouragers? Just in our church, in our schools, in our companies, where we're at, in our families. There's so many different ways we can do this. You just call someone, you write someone, you, you tell them I'm for you, you can bake some things for someone, you take someone to lunch, and what you do in your communication, you speak the truth in love. You let them know that you're for them. So few people have anyone in their corner. Why don't you be that person? And you can be that person for a lot of folks. Because this text is saying, if you're a Christ and individual, and you're really waiting for the return of Jesus, why we are to be encouraging the faint-hearted. Reminding them, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. You see, our orientation is Christ-centered individuals. This can be a reality. We admonish the unruly, we encourage the faint-hearted. Notice this. He says, help the weak. You see that in verse 14? Help, to be loyal, to hold firmly. It has the idea to like actively hold a person. That's kind of the idea that's behind there. It's that, that someone that needs help, you're close. You're close by. You care. Now, these people that are weak can be weak in a lot of things. They can be weak physically. Weak emotionally.
emotionally, weak spiritually. They, they doubt that God can forgive them. They got all these problems. They have weakness in their life. As a believer, as a Christian, whether they are a Christian or not, we're called to help the weak. Now, we help the weak not to keep them weak, okay? We always help because we want to move people to help. The idea is like, well, you're just a sorry case, and you're going to have a tough life. I'll help you here, but it'll be the same problem tomorrow and the next week and the next year. No, we always help people with the idea we want to help them grow to the fullness of health in Christ. But I will tell you this, that God can do some very powerful work deep within us when we help the weak. Dr. Mary Poplin, uh, she took a, an extended trip to Mother Teresa's Missions of, Missions of Charity. And in this uh, book, she writes of her account where she's working with these infants in this nursery. There was one particular infant, five months old, this, this little boy, very, he had a lot of deformities. And she said, I just, I just always tried to avoid him. I just couldn't go there. It was, it was too difficult. But one day it was unavoidable, and I'd like to read just an excerpt of what she wrote. When feeding time was over, the babies were falling asleep in their bassinets, and I was getting ready to go. And I glanced at the infants on my way out the door and noticed that undigested formula was dripping out of this child's bassinet. He had thrown up what must have been the entire eight-ounce bottle. Looking around for someone to tell as I left the room... I saw no one in the infant area, and a few adults in the room had their hands full with other children. So I decided, with no little struggle, to stay and clean up the mess. I put on my apron again, lifted the baby out of his bassinet, and helped him on my shoulder as I began to gather the dirty sheets together and use them to wipe up the mess. And as I was cleaning, I heard a muffled sound from the infant in my arms. Tears were pouring out of his eyes, and the only sound he could make was a convulsive sob. And as I looked at him, I saw in myself what Jeremiah called the desperate wickedness of the heart. I realized I had approached this task with a spirit of resistance and impatience. I had thought very little, if at all, about this child and his needs other than to be clean. As I threw the sheets into the laundry pile, I began to bathe his little misshapen body and change his clothes. Afterward, I held him to me as tightly as I could. I looked at him, I rocked him, and I prayed. And in a short time, he was asleep. I must tell you that the moment I saw him weeping and realized the wretchedness in my heart, I knew it was sin. There was no doubt in my mind that this is what Christ meant when he said, out of the heart come evil thoughts. I asked Christ to forgive me and change me. And in those moments, as I rocked the baby, I could feel Christ's work inside my spirit just as surely as if he were sitting next to me. Friends, God does a, a deep work in our hearts. When we're willing to go outside our comfort zones and to actually help the weak. And we can we can in Christ. Notice something else he says. Our orientation to Jesus, being Christ-centered. We can be patient with everyone. The word patient here has the idea of being slow to anger. Okay? One person defined patience this way. Patience 
is the ability to idle your motor when you feel like stripping the gears, you know? Right? You know what I'm talking about? Just staying cool, staying calm, staying in control. And patience is something that's very difficult. I, I find it difficult to be patient. I do understand this, that the only way that I really will be patient is if I love. That fact, 1 Corinthians 13, 4, it says, love is patient. When I'm being patient, it's because I'm exercising love. And when I'm being impatient, love is a little bit absent right here, at least right now. Karina will sometimes sing this crazy song at some really inopportune times, if you know what I'm saying. A little stressful, things aren't going so well. All of a sudden, we start hearing, have patience, have patience, don't be in such a hurry. When you get impatient, you only start to worry, right? And they're like looking at her, and then she goes, remember, remember that God is patient too, and think of all the times others had to wait for you, right? Like, enough of the music, you know what I'm saying? And of course, she's singing this song, why? For the benefit of the children, right? Because they need to learn to be patient. And the benefit for her grown-up kids that she's still parenting, right? Because I need to learn patience. Friends, God wants us to learn how to be patient with others. That's why he writes this to you. And we can, because of Christ. Let me show you something else about our orientation of being Christ-centered. Look at verse 15. He says, See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. He wants us to seek after the good for one another. You see, one form of self-centeredness is that we're going to take revenge. But you need to understand something. If you're a Christian following Jesus, you can't retaliate. Yeah, there's a justice system. If the law needs to be brought in, you have, as a believer, every right to do so. But you can't personally take revenge. Remember when we went through the book of Romans, Romans chapter 12, verse 17, he says, Never pay back evil to evil for anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. There it is again. And then he said this, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. You might have been flat out wrong. They hurt you. They were malicious. But you know what? God will eventually address the issue. He may be working in ways that you already don't know, but you and I need to learn to leave it with him. You see, we're conditioned as part of our DNA to pay back people. You push me, I push you. You do something mean to me, I might even be better at it than you. And you're in for it now, right? We, we live like this. But along comes Jesus. And Jesus is like totally different. Like, he contradicts the way we generally function in our culture. Like, Jesus would say things like, you've heard it said, and then he goes, but, but I say to you. You've heard it say, like, people live this way, but I say to you. And what Jesus did is he brought a whole new way of life. And here's something you need to know. He is the life. He's the way. And so he's calling us, you trust me, you follow me, you go my way, and things are going to work out. For my glory and for your benefit. But you've got to follow me. Especially in this area. It's not natural, but I will tell you it is possible. And this idea of, of exercising equivalent behavior and response like evil for evil. You know, this can be a special challenge in marriage.
blog called Opera Dan recently, uh, he had one on core rules, rules, excuse me, for marriage, any marriage, and any fight. Core rules for any marriage and any fight. I thought, this is pretty good. This is what he said. He says, like, for instance, no threatening. This includes, like, physical intimidation, threats of violence, threats of divorce, ultimatums. Another he said is, keep it in the present. Don't bring up the old stuff, even if it seems relevant. Uh, third thing he says, don't use inflammatory language. You know, like, like the absolute language, like, you always, or you never. Or, you know, what you want to say is like, well, it, no, it doesn't seem reasonable, and then you can state what it is, versus saying, that was the stupidest thing I ever heard. Did you just say that? that these things are not going to be helpful. This is kind of evil for evil. He says, another thing, no storming out of the room or a house. Well, I know, it looks like you're going to make some real powerful statement. It's probably not the statement that you want to make. If you need a minute or two to cool off, okay, but you get back in there. None of this passive-aggressive bit from, I'm storming out. No. You need to get in there, and you need to address it, and with Jesus you can. And one other thing he says is no cheap shots, no calling names, no low accusations. And I don't know if you learned this the hard way, but he said no calling her by her mother's name. Never go well for you if you do that. Right? He says, you see, what he's saying here is don't repay evil for evil. Max Lucado says this, conflict is inevitable, but combat is optional. You choose if there's going to be a fight and a war. You're going to have conflict, but it doesn't have to lead to another world war in your house. Are you tired of living that way? Well, good. Because Jesus says, I want you to go my way. And not repaying evil for evil. Now, some people say, well, you know what? I didn't do anything wrong. I just went silent on her. I didn't say anything. Well, actually, the question is, did you do anything right? You see, it's not just don't do the evil thing. Actually, God called us to do the positive right thing. See what the text says? But rather, always. You see that word? If I want to underline it, I did. Always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. We're pursuing what is their best interest. It's not enough to abstain from evil. We've got to do what is right and what is positive. Gordon MacDonald um, writes of a, a couple that he knows that are in their 90s. They've been married for 60 years, Dr. Paul and Edith Reese. And he asked uh, Dr. Reese, and there's, now they've been married for 60 years, and they're in their 90s, right? They're practically perfected if you hit that age, right? He asked them, do you guys still fight? And Dr. Reese says, oh, well, sure we do. Oh, he's kind of surprised by that. He says, well, in fact, yesterday morning was a case in point. Edith and I were in our car, and she was driving. She failed to stop at a stop sign. It scared me half to death. So McDonald's thinking, uh, what did you do? Well, listen to what he said, Dr. Reese. Well, I've loved Edith for all these years, and I've learned how to say hard things to her. But I must be careful, because when Edith was a little girl, her father always spoke to her harshly. And today, when she hears a manly voice speak in anger, even my voice, well, she is deeply, deeply hurt. <laughs> McDonald's like, it's unbelievable. Like, what? I mean, Edith is 90 years old. Are you telling me that she remembers a harsh voice from many, many years ago? And Reese said, well, yeah, she remembers that voice more than ever. And McDonald's like, well, then how did you handle the incident from yesterday? And he said, well, simply this way. I said to Edith, 
Edith, darling, after we've had our afternoon nap, I want to discuss a thought I have for you. And when the nap was over, I did. I was calm, she was ready to listen, and we solved our little problem. And McDonald concluded this in his article. There are, these are the words of a man who has learned that conflict is necessary, can be productive, but must be managed with wisdom and grace. And by the time I reach 90, I hope to be just like him. You see, seeking after what is good, that's going to mean that we're going to actively engage in the process. Sometimes that's going to mean that you're going to have to ask for forgiveness specifically, and you're going to have to grant it. Forgiveness isn't a feeling. If you're waiting for, I feel like forgiving, you're going to be waiting a long time. No, forgiveness is a decision. It's a decision to release, a decision to embrace grace and mercy. It's a decision to pardon, and it's a decision to grow deep in Christ. And that means at times you're going to have to specifically say, will you forgive me for specifically what you said or did? And that means also you're going to have to say, I forgive you for this. But friends, all of this is written because these are practical principles of how you and I relate well and develop deep relationships. And I guarantee if you do this, you trust Christ to do this in you, you're going to have some really good relationships. Several years ago, Karina gave me just a great gift. It was a kind of a family picture album that she put together. In fact, there's a picture of it from 1992 to 2012. In fact, okay, there's my semi-famous cat, Pumpkin. All 18 pounds of it, right there, okay? And anyway, Karina gave me, he wanted to be in the picture, I guess. So anyway, it's, I want you to focus on the book. All right, so that, she gave me this. And it kind of traces our history, and I picked it up sometimes, and I'm like, how awesome it has been to be in this family. I mean, Karina has put up with me for all these years. The prayers of the church have been answered. You know, I mean, it's happening. And then you see the pictures and the kids, and they're coming along, and all these different scenes. You're like, what an awesome privilege to be able to share in this. But you know what this awesome privilege of being in the call family? There are also some responsibilities. Do you know that? I have a responsibility to love my family well. And you know how you do that? These verses, the very ones we looked at today. And you, you're likely in a family. And I can assure you, if you're trusting in Christ, you're in the family of God. And God wants us to relate well to one another. To have deep and significant relationships. And when we're trusting in Jesus, we're Christ-centered. These verses become our reality to God's glory. Let's pray. Lord, we want to thank you for an amazing passage of Scripture. Overwhelming. How you and your just great clarity, you have had written down by your spirit, how we are to live, live in Christ, and to live well. To have relationships that we enjoy that are meaningful and deep, purposeful, and God-glorifying. So Lord, for someone who has come here today, I'm like, their relationships are a wreck. Their relationship with you is a wreck. But you've got their full attention. Would they just simply pray with me and say, Father, I turn from my sin and my selfishness, and I trust in Jesus this morning. And I ask that you be the Lord of my life. And God, for all of us, would you give us a fresh vision for our relationships? May we apply these verses by the power of your Spirit for your glory. This we ask as we pray in Jesus' name.